everyone and welcome to classic gaming today where we take a look at the gaming experiences of the past through the eyes of the present i am your host tony and today we will have our very first shareware showdown episode featuring jill of the jungle a side-scrolling platform title developed by epic mega games in 1992 versus duke nukem another side-scrolling platform title developed by apogee software in 1991 both of those for the Microsoft DOS computer platform. We're going to talk about those games in just a couple minutes, but first, as is usual, just a little bit of housekeeping up front. This is episode number 63. I'm excited to be here. I hope all of you are as well. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing, provide feedback, comments, suggestions, or just talk about classic games and technology in general. I would love to hear from you, and there are a few ways you can reach out. I have an X account with the handle at Classic Gaming T. I have an email address, which is ClassicGamingToday at gmail.com. And I have a Discord server. The link is in the show notes. Discord is the best way to get in touch with me and the rest of the podcast community. We have a ton of fun out on Discord, including a weekly gaming challenge. This past weekend was all about sun and snow because for some of us, we are getting ready to enter the winter time, while other listeners, depending on where you live, might be getting ready for the summer. So I thought, why not celebrate both by having games focused on sun and snow? Now, usually I would record this segment on Sunday evening right before the show goes live. But I know some of you are aware I have been battling some nasty colds over the past month. Right now, my voice feels fairly good. I don't know if it's going to feel fairly good on Sunday. So I am recording this before Sunday. I do not have the results of the weekend gaming challenge just yet. So this is a little bit different than our normal kind of episode. Just trying to keep my voice going as opposed to losing it, which could potentially happen as the weekend goes on. Anyway, beyond the Weekend Gaming Challenge, we are also kicking off our December Monthly Challenge. Now, this monthly challenge is a little bit different. Rather than having a bunch of games that we're going to play and get points for, we are going to have a competitive challenge. All of the details are out on Discord, so if that sounds like a fun time, join Discord. The link is in the show notes. It really is a blast. I should also mention that we do have a Patreon. It is patreon.com slash classic gaming today. If you want even more classic gaming today, goodness, patreon.com slash classic gaming today is where it's at. We have a Patreon exclusive bi-weekly podcast. We are going to be releasing our next episode coming up in just a couple days. That is going to be focused on Once Upon Atari, which is Howard Scott Warshaw's book about the creation of E.T. and the downfall of Atari. Last week's main episode was all about E.T., and I thought, 
wouldn't it be a great idea to get the story right from the horse's mouth and really go into that? So we're going to have some additional details, a lot of supplemental details beyond what we had in last week's episode. That is our Patreon episode coming up this upcoming Tuesday night, Wednesday morning at midnight. I also want to give a shout out to our Pantheon members of the Patreon. They are ISO, Rich Senewal, David Morton, and Sam Twardowski. Thank you guys for supporting the show. Thank you all for supporting the show. Whether you contribute monetarily or you simply listen on a regular basis, I truly do appreciate all of the support. For anyone who may be new, welcome. I just want to give a brief overview of the anatomy of an episode because, for the most part, all of our episodes follow a very similar format and structure. We will always start by talking about the history of the game in question, the historical context. How was the game made? Why was the game made? And then we move into a pseudo-review kind of section. And I say pseudo-review because it's not like we assign a numerical ranking or star rating or anything like that. But we do look at every single game from several different perspectives. We take a look at the graphics. How does the game look? The sound and music. How does the game sound? The narrative and or story, if the game has one. Playability and controls and overall feel. What does it feel like to play the game today versus when it was released 20, 30, maybe even 40 years ago? We do all of that to reach a verdict as far as how well the game holds up today. And to do that, we assign each game to one of several categories. At the very top of our list is the Pantheon of Classic Gaming. If a game reaches the Pantheon, you know it is that darn good. It is a certifiable classic. You should drop what you're doing and go out and play those games today. Just beyond the Pantheon are our golden oldies. These are still really good games. I still highly recommend them. I think you will absolutely have a great time. They are not quite Pantheon level, but they are still really worthwhile experiences, and you still owe it to yourself to play those titles today. Beyond the golden oldies, we reach our mediocre mentions. This is where we start getting into the realm of games that I can't really recommend to the broader population. You may still have a good time, especially if you enjoy the genre in which the game lives. By all means, go for it. But I can't recommend these to the broad gaming population. May have aged a little bit, might have had a couple of issues to begin with. And then beyond the mediocre mentions, we reach the footnotes. These are the games that are best left in the annals of history. I have played them, so you don't have to. I cannot recommend anyone play these titles today they have either aged incredibly poorly or they may not have been all that great to begin with with that out of the way we're going to start talking about the games of the day in our first ever shareware showdown Ready for our first Shareware Showdown episode featuring Jill of the Jungle, which was a side scrolling platform title developed by Epic Mega Games in 1992, versus Duke Nukem, a side scrolling platform title developed by Apogee Software in 1991, both of those for the Microsoft DOS computer platform. Before we can talk about either of our featured attractions, both Jill of the Jungle and Duke Nukem, 
we need to talk about shareware itself, which was the method of software distribution that would ultimately be responsible for both Duke and Jill's release, as well as the evolution of the two game companies that would develop Duke Nukem and Jill of the Jungle, Apogee Software and Epic Mega Games. So let's start by talking about shareware. If you were a computer gamer in the late 80s into the early to mid 90s, I am going to guess that you had some exposure to shareware, which was one of the more popular forms of software distribution of the time. With shareware, developers would release a single part of their game for free, oftentimes one episode of a multi-episode experience, with the thought being that if someone really enjoyed that single episode, then he or she would be able to buy the remainder of the game, most often directly from the development company. It was almost similar to a demo disc, except shareware titles usually provided a pretty good chunk of gameplay in comparison to the majority of demos that have released over the years. While shareware would really become popular in the early 90s, its origin actually dates all the way back to 1982, which is when a trio of different software developers began to distribute their software in a very different way than what had been the norm. First, though, it's important to remember that software in the early 80s, particularly productivity software packages, were oftentimes incredibly expensive. Remember, computers of the time were designed and meant to be productivity machines as opposed to game-playing devices. So software like word processors, spreadsheets, and other applications were the kinds of applications that many developers made money off of. And those applications were expensive, with many costing several hundred dollars, which meant that buying the software was serious business. It's not like you had an option to use free tools like Google's applications to perform your productivity tasks. If you were going to actually use your computer to do something meaningful, you were going to have to spend a bunch of money to do so. In 1982, a man named Andrew Flugelman came up with an idea. What if, rather than requiring an individual to spend a couple hundred dollars up front, you could instead distribute your software package for free, but require a donation prior to sending out any software updates or additional features? Sure, you wouldn't necessarily be guaranteed any sales, at least up front, but if you created something compelling enough, then you would, hopefully, make some money in the long run. Flugelman would end up putting this concept into action with the release of an early telecommunications program called PC Talk. All he required was a formatted floppy disk, and he would give you a copy of the software 100% free. And that software was completely full-featured, no time limits, no disabled functionality. It was simply the full package. Embedded in the software was a message that said something to the effect of, if you're enjoying the software and want additional updates, please send $25 to Andrew Flugelman. Now, you might be thinking, did it actually work? Was Andrew Flugelman's experiment a success? Well, honestly, I don't know the concrete answer to that question, as it's apparently difficult to find sales figures for what was effectively the very first shareware program. But what I can say is that PC Talk would spawn multiple versions over the years, some of which would eventually transition to a traditional retail software kind of model. So my assumption is that it did well enough for Flugelman to continue enhancing the software. 
Coincidentally, around the same time Flugelman was creating what was effectively the first shareware program in history, Jim Knopf was hard at work creating his own software package for eventual distribution. This one, a database program called EasyFile. Knopf had a similar concept as Flugelman in that he figured out that he could effectively give his software away for free and then ask for a minor donation, in his case $10, in order for users to receive future enhancements and updates. What makes this particularly interesting is that Knopf discovered that Flugelman had done something similar, and he actually reached out to him to begin communicating and discussing how best to market their software under this new model. Based on those conversations, Knopf ended up changing the name of his database program from EasyFile to PCFile to make it sound more in line with Flugelman's PC Talk application. Knopf was also encouraged by Flugelman to raise the price of his requested quote-unquote donation, which he ended up doing, adopting the now-standard $25 that Flugelman had put in place previously. So at this point, which is right around the middle of 1983, the concept of shareware was starting to spread. But nobody really had a name for this new model of software distribution. The first person to actually coin the word shareware for a form of software distribution was a Microsoft programmer named Bob Wallace, who had created a word processing program called PCWrite, which he decided to distribute using the same model that Flugelman and Knopf had pioneered. The only difference was, rather than refer to that distribution method as simply user-supported software, which is what it had been referred to up to this point, Wallace would instead call his program shareware. Interestingly, the word shareware didn't actually originate with Bob Wallace, but was instead the name of a column in the computer magazine InfoWorld. Wallace liked the name so much that he decided to use it for software distribution, but in reality, he did not come up with the word itself. Anyway, with both the concept of and the word for shareware now in use, a number of developers begin creating software packages under the same model. And while shareware would start to gain some traction throughout the 1980s, it didn't exactly reach mainstream attention until several years later, when in 1987, a man named Scott Miller decided to apply the concept to games he was beginning to create. Scott Miller had always had a fondness for computers, and he'd often spend hours in his high school computer lab, chatting with other like-minded individuals, playing various games, and above all else, dreaming about making games of his own. That dream would be placed on hold briefly as he went off to attend college, but it wouldn't take long before he realized that formal schooling was not really his thing. He believed that he'd be able to have a better career simply by working on video games rather than completing school and going off to work at some technology company. So that's exactly what he did. Miller decided to leave his schoolwork behind and focus on becoming a full-fledged video game developer. As a solo developer, Miller began to develop some simple computer games with the hopes of striking a deal with a major game publisher to sell his work. Unfortunately for Miller, that would not come to fruition, as many publishers around this time weren't too keen to work with someone who was a college dropout. It was almost as though Miller had a stigma associated with him simply because he didn't complete his formal education, somewhat similar to how many companies today expect an individual to have completed a college education prior to allowing them to work certain jobs. It is a bit strange to me that publishers in the gaming industry apply this same degree of scrutiny around this time, considering the number of high school-age developers that were breaking into the industry. But regardless, Miller was in a tough spot. 
He wanted to become a well-respected game developer, and he was learning the skills necessary to hopefully be successful, but nobody would work with him to get his games to market. Because of his inability to find a publisher for his games, Miller started looking at how to self-publish his titles, and eventually took inspiration from the concept of shareware that had, like we talked about, sprung onto the computer software scene several years prior. Miller, though, had a different take on the process. Recall that early shareware titles were effectively full-featured releases that depended on voluntary donations from users in order to receive future updates. But at the end of the day, that still meant that the base piece of software was being distributed entirely for free, and there really was no forcing function that would drive an individual to need to spend their money to continue using the software or to unlock previously restricted features. If someone liked a given software package, they could simply keep using it, and the only thing they'd be foregoing was technical support and the promise of future enhancements. Making money on shareware releases was in no way a sure thing, as there was no guarantee a developer would ever receive any money for his or her work. Recognizing there was a gap in the shareware model, Miller decided to do something different. Rather than give a whole piece of software to someone and hope that they would donate some money in the future, Miller would instead provide an individual with the first episode of a multi-episode game for free, oftentimes via online forums like bulletin board services or BBSs, with future episodes only able to be unlocked if some form of payment was made. Under this revised shareware model, Miller would effectively offer consumers a taste of the product, and if they liked what they experienced, they'd be able to register and purchase the rest of the game. This revised shareware distribution model would become incredibly popular across numerous game development studios, and Miller's company that he founded in 1987, Apogee Software Productions, would be one of its earliest pioneers. Apogee early on would only have one employee, that being, you guessed it, Scott Miller, and because it was a singularly focused effort, Miller was able to define a specific model that he believed would work for nearly every one of his releases. In almost all cases, any game made by Apogee Software would need to align with the shareware model of software distribution, with each title segmented into a try-before-you-buy section, followed by a meatier, more in-depth experience. Most of the time, that meant designing games as a collection of episodes, like I mentioned a few minutes ago, though there wasn't exactly a one-size-fits-all template dictating how a game needed to be structured. Miller's guidelines were simple. As long as part of a game could be released for free, it didn't really matter how many episodes made up the full experience beyond that initial free slice of gameplay. With that guideline in place, Miller would begin developing titles himself, while at the same time striking deals with other independent developers, the intent being that Apogee would act as a publisher for other developers' shareware titles. He had some instrumental early successes in getting these publishing deals stood up, and some even led to Apogee expanding its internal staff, with two in particular, the hiring of George Broussard and Todd Replogle, being of particular note to our story. Interestingly, George Broussard and Scott Miller had previously been acquaintances, as they had both met years ago while working in their high school computer lab. Since that time, Broussard had begun to develop his own solo games under the MicroFX label, and Miller was so interested in his work that he knew he wanted to bring Broussard into the company as a full-time hire. Todd Replogle, similarly, had impressed Miller with the quality of his work, and in particular, his programming prowess, so he would join Apogee as a full-time developer alongside George Broussard in 1990. 
With Replogle and Broussard both now on staff, Miller would be able to expand Apogee from a solo software development and publishing company into an actual organization with multiple people contributing to its success. There was only one potential issue. Sure, Apogee as a company was beginning to grow, but now they had to decide what it was they actually wanted to work on. They knew that anything that they made would have to align with the shareware software distribution model. They just didn't know what that first game was going to be. And here, they would take inspiration from another group of highly talented developers who Miller had worked with previously, that being the early members of id Software. Id Software as a company was founded in 1991 by genius developer John Carmack, strategic visionary and programmer John Romero, game designer Tom Hall, and graphic artist Adrian Carmack, and their origin story is incredibly interesting in its own right. Prior to forming id Software, the four men had been working at a computer magazine company called Softdisk Magazine, whose claim to fame was the fact that every single issue would come with a disc with a bunch of different software programs and computer games on it. When Softdisk Magazine sprung onto the scene, this method of disc-based distribution was still a novel idea, as magazines from the late 70s into the early 80s would be produced as solely paper periodicals, which meant that if anyone wanted to actually run the programs referenced in those magazines, he or she would need to type the provided source code into their computers themselves, line by line, character by character. This, as you might imagine, was a bit cumbersome and prone to errors, so when magazines that offered discs with preloaded software came onto the market, like Softdisk Magazine, computer users the world over breathed a collective sigh of relief. The crew that would eventually become id Software were responsible for creating games for Softdisk, and that's exactly what they would do for the early portion of their employment. Most of these titles were simple, arcade-like experiences, though eventually, John Carmack would create something that would change the face of computer gaming forever. That was, as we've talked about in prior episodes of the podcast, the concept of smoothly scrolling platform gaming on a computer, which up to this point had rarely, if ever, been seen before. Home video game consoles, like the Nintendo Entertainment System, were built to efficiently move graphics on television screens, so they were able to provide smoothly scrolling gameplay quite easily. Computers, despite the proliferation of games throughout the 80s, were still viewed as primarily productivity machines, and their graphical capabilities paled in comparison to home consoles of the time. Carmack was able to bridge that gap a bit through the creation of smooth side-scrolling technology on a computer, and he and the id Software team would leverage that technology to create their own shareware-based experience, the Commander Keen Trilogy. And by the way, if anyone wants to learn more about id Software's founding, I encourage you to check out our prior episode on Commander Keen, as well as several other episodes we have highlighting some of id's classic game catalog. Interestingly, though, it would be Scott Miller who would encourage John Carmack, John Romero, and the rest of the id Software crew to strike out on their own and develop a shareware title. And in fact, Apogee Software would become id's publishing partner for the first Commander Keen trilogy of games. Because of that partnership, Miller had a very strong understanding of the work id Software was doing, as well as their technical prowess, and he and the rest of the Apogee team would be heavily inspired by Commander Keen when they began thinking about what their first game as a true multi-person company was going to be. They knew that they wanted to mimic the style of Commander Keen, but they didn't care for the more cutesy aspects of the title. Instead, Apogee wanted to create a game and a main character that was more hardcore than what Commander Keen had been, and to help depict that goal, 
they would end up codenaming their new game Heavy Metal. As Heavy Metal began to materialize as a concept, Todd Replogle was tasked with creating a smooth side-scrolling platforming engine for the game to run on. There was just one problem. Despite the fact that Replogle was a very talented programmer, he was not exactly sure how to create an engine that would actually be able to smoothly scroll as you made your way through the game world. Luckily for Replogle and the Apogee team, they already had a prior publishing deal with a man who could definitely help them with that engine, that being none other than John Carmack. So, Replogle reached out to Carmack, who was gracious enough to show Replogle how he might code an engine like that, while at the same time actually creating a portion of the engine himself, which, by the way, I think is simply awesome. The degree of collaboration between game programmers in the early days of the computer game industry is something I truly admire and wish there was more of today. Anyway, with Carmack's help, Todd Replogle was able to create their side-scrolling platforming engine, and it looked like Heavy Metal was shaping up nicely for a release. But there was one additional hurdle to overcome. Scott Miller hated the name Heavy Metal. He had only intended it to be a code name for the game to represent that Apogee was creating a game that was quote-unquote more metal than other computer platforming titles. He never intended for the game to release using that title. Miller and the team began brainstorming ideas, and Miller suggested that perhaps they could name the game after the game's main character, which also meant that they had to come up with a catchy name for that main character. Miller began thinking about it, eventually suggesting the name Duke, which he believed was manly-sounding and would fit well in an action-oriented title. Todd Replogle also liked Duke as a first name, and he ended up coming up with Nukem as the last name for the character. The entire Apogee team agreed that this was pretty much a perfect name for an action-driven, run-and-gun platforming experience. So from that point on, Heavy Metal would be rebranded as Duke Nukem. Duke Nukem would release in 1991 to a strong critical response with many news publications praising the game's smooth-scrolling graphics and some even claiming in later years that Duke Nukem was the best platform game ever made for a computer. It would go on to sell approximately 70,000 copies and would spawn not just a direct sequel, but would also end up creating a brand new franchise of games with perhaps the best known and most well-respected of the bunch being Duke Nukem 3D, the mid-90s first-person shooter that would take on id Software's Quake and in the process thrust one of the most iconic and popular video game characters of all time into the pop culture spotlight. If you want to learn more about Duke Nukem 3D specifically, you should definitely check out our prior episode on it. Independent of its FPS incarnation, though, the original Duke Nukem would become a well-respected game in its own right, with gamers often playing into the early hours of the morning, all in an effort to defeat the evil Dr. Proton and save the world from certain doom. Interestingly, while Scott Miller and the Apogee team were working on the creation of Duke Nukem, there was another company that was getting ready to enter the market, led by a man who would eventually become one of the most influential figures in computer and video game history. That company was Epic Mega Games, and that man was Tim Sweeney. We actually discussed Tim Sweeney a bit during our episode on Unreal, but just to recap, Sweeney wasn't always interested in computers, but he was, from a very early age, interested in understanding how things worked. That curiosity led Sweeney to perform a variety of experiments to learn the mechanics behind various machines, with his early life spent taking things apart and trying to reassemble them simply to see if he could figure out their inner workings. 
This interest would eventually shift to arcade machines of the late 70s, where Sweeney, though not much of a gamer, became intrigued by how these huge cabinets full of electronic hardware and digital instructions could possibly be creating interactive experiences on their embedded glass screens. This intrigue led Sweeney to begin teaching himself a variety of programming languages and computer platforms throughout his pre-teen and teenage years, and in the process, he taught himself how to create games. Now, unlike many aspiring developers of the time, Sweeney had no intent of selling those games he was creating. He viewed them simply as learning tools for him to continue to become more proficient in game development. While he would go to college for mechanical engineering, he never lost his interest in the digital world of games and computer technology, and that interest would result in the creation of a computer consulting firm, Potomac Computer Systems, in 1991. It wouldn't take long, though, before Sweeney realized that computer consultation took a lot of time, and running the business was becoming prohibitively difficult to balance with his other interests. So he decided to stop the computer consulting business, focusing instead on the creation of computer games, and more specifically, the creation of games that could actually be released for gamers to purchase. The first title he'd released to market was an ASCII character-based adventure title called ZZT, which was in fact born out of Sweeney's attempt to create a Pascal text editor that he would actually want to use. While he was creating that editor, he was struck by inspiration, and ended up creating a unique game engine and text character-driven gaming experience that was somewhat reminiscent of the Atari 2600 title Adventure, which interestingly was one of the few games that Sweeney actually enjoyed playing as a child. While ZZT was certainly a primitive game by today's standards, it would still become fairly popular, with Sweeney utilizing Scott Miller's shareware release model whereby players could get the first episode for free, but would then need to pay for the right for any access to subsequent episodes of the title. Sweeney, incidentally, had actually reached out to Scott Miller in early 1991 seeking advice on how to become a game developer, and Miller provided some guidance and suggestions as a result. It seems like Sweeney took that advice to heart, as ZZT would represent a solid first entry into the computer game market. With ZZT's release, Sweeney realized that he had to think about how best to market his games moving forward. ZZT was effectively self-published by Sweeney's one-man computer consulting company, Potomac Computer Systems, and he realized that in an industry dominated by cool-sounding company names like Apogee and id Software, the name Potomac Computer Systems didn't exactly scream awesome games made here. So he decided to rebrand his company to something that would convey just how awesome his company's games could be, which is when he came up with the company's new moniker, Epic Mega Games. Shortly after releasing ZZT, Sweeney began thinking about the next game he wanted to work on. Believing that a game with high-quality graphics and sound would make more money than games styled similarly to ZZT's more rudimentary text-based visuals and gameplay, he decided that his next title would be much more similar to modern computer platform titles of the time, like id Software's Commander Keen and Apogee's Duke Nukem. With that goal in mind, Sweeney sat down to begin working on his second commercial game, the multi-episode shareware title, Jill of the Jungle. There was only one problem. Sweeney was an excellent developer, but he didn't really have the skills needed to effectively create art for a game. The only reason he was able to create and release ZZT was because it was an entirely text-character-driven interface and game world. If he wanted to create a compelling visual platform title like his contemporaries, he was going to need to include high-quality art with the title. 
Recognizing this deficit, Sweeney decided to hire four more people to work on the title. And with that, Epic Mega Games stopped being a one-person operation and was now an actual full-fledged company. With an actual team in place, work on Jill of the Jungle began in earnest, with Sweeney focusing on the creation of the game's engine and the rest of his staff working on art, animation, and music and sound effects. Sweeney's goal with Jill of the Jungle was simple. He wanted to create a side-scrolling platform action experience similar to other available titles of the time, but he wanted to one-up the rest of the industry and, at the same time, demonstrate that Epic Mega Games was a company that could compete with the major players in the industry. This meant looking at other games and figuring out how he could make his own title better than those other companies' games. If a game like Commander Keen used 16 colors, Sweeney's game was going to use 256 colors. If a game had no sound except for computer speaker-esque beeps and noises like Duke Nukem, Sweeney's game would have a full soundtrack and digital pre-recorded sound effects. Basically, Sweeney's approach to developing Jill of the Jungle was a version of anything you can do, I can do better, and he was intent on making his new title the best platforming game available on a computer system. Sweeney was also interested in subverting a bit of the status quo in gaming around this time, as he was adamant that his new title would feature a strong female as the main character of the game, rather than a buff, macho, manly man. At this point, it might make sense to take a step back and discuss, at least briefly, female representation in video games, because even though it's not recognized as such, Jill of the Jungle would actually be a fairly important release in its use of a female as the main solo protagonist in a game. From the dawn of the game industry, the vast majority of games featured male characters as the player-controllable protagonist in games, which was driven primarily by the fact that the majority of the game industry of the time was dominated by men. While there were certainly important and influential females in the gaming industry, such as the legendary Roberta Williams, they were still the exception rather than the rule, and even looking at gamer demographics, the majority were males. As a result, many games were created and marketed to appeal to young boys and male gamers, which meant that in many instances, games would feature heroic men combating some enemy as though they were participating in an action film, with females being relegated to the role of damsel in distress. This would begin to shift, if only slightly, with the release of Pac-Man in arcades in 1980, as the character was decidedly more androgynous than many characters of the time, and the gameplay was decidedly less action and shooting heavy than many testosterone-fueled games. This, interestingly, drove more females to begin playing the game, and Pac-Man would become the first commercially available game where female game players outnumbered the males, when taken in aggregate across the industry. This was a big deal, and proved that video games weren't just for boys. There was a large contingent of female gamers interested in the industry. They just didn't have the appropriate representation in order to be able to see themselves in a game's character. Despite Pac-Man's success with the female population, we wouldn't really see a large increase in female representation in video games for years. Sure, Midway would publish Ms. Pac-Man in 1982, largely as a way of capitalizing on Pac-Man's gamer demographics, and Nintendo would melt the brains of an entire generation when hardcore action hero Samus Aran was revealed, in fact, to be a woman. But the game industry at large was not ready to accept a female as the main character in a video game. Which is to say, 
When Sweeney decided that Jill of the Jungle would be built around the concept of an Amazonian warrior saving the day and eventually saving a kidnapped prince, it was almost akin to blasphemy. The knight in shining armor is supposed to save the princess, not the other way around. Sweeney, however, was undeterred, and he believed that creating a quality platforming experience would transcend whomever the main character would end up being. Choosing a female lead character would help the game appeal to females, sure, but creating a quality game would, at the end of the day, appeal to everyone. In what I thought was an interesting twist of fate, all of Sweeney's high-quality work would attract the attention of Apogee and Scott Miller, who reached out to Sweeney in the hopes of publishing his forthcoming shareware title. Sweeney considered the offer, but ultimately decided that he was content publishing his upcoming game himself, and in 1992, Jill of the Jungle would release as fully developed and published by Epic Mega Games. Jill of the Jungle would be met with a positive response from critics and gamers, but would ultimately fail to attract the level of attention that other titles released around this time would garner. At its height, Jill of the Jungle would end up selling between 20 to 30 copies daily, which is not an insignificant number, but it is certainly not the same volume as other platform titles released around the same time. Despite the lack of sales, Jill of the Jungle would be popular enough for work to begin on a sequel to be developed by a company called Six Pound Sledge Studios and published by Epic Mega Games. Work would continue on the proposed sequel until one day during a review of the title's progress, Epic Mega Games decided that it wasn't quite up to the level of quality they expected. So they decided to sever ties with the game and would instead publish Jazz Jackrabbit as their next platforming shareware hit the failed Jill of the Jungle sequel would end up being rebranded and retooled into a new game, Vinyl Goddess from Mars, which, though it has no true association with Jill of the Jungle anymore, does in fact look and play exactly like what you would expect a Jill of the Jungle sequel to be. In the years that followed Jill of the Jungle's release, Epic Mega Games would expand to become one of the most prominent shareware software publishers in the world, and would in fact become a main competitor to Apogee Software as a result. The two companies would often compete to sign the same developers and games to exclusive publishing agreements, and while each side would win some battles and lose others, all interactions were always professional and above board, according to both Tim Sweeney and Scott Miller. It is kind of interesting how both companies matured and developed over the course of the 90s, with each becoming incredibly important to the continued existence of the shareware software distribution model that had originated all the way back in the early 80s. Nowadays, the concept of shareware is becoming increasingly rare, with many companies shifting towards the concept of time-limited or heavily restricted demos as opposed to releasing full chunks of their game for free. There are still some products that utilize the shareware model, such as the popular digital audio workstation Reaper, but shareware in the gaming industry has fallen out of favor. Which, speaking from my personal perspective, is a shame, as shareware titles helped shape my early computer gaming experiences. I'm not suggesting that shareware today would feel the same as the awesome episodic action titles of the 90s, because I think the experimentation of the time helped to really make those games feel special and unique. But I do miss the concept of shareware, and I would be lying if I said I didn't hold a great deal of nostalgia for the shareware titles of the past. Speaking of those past titles... Duke Nukem and Jill of the Jungle, along with Commander Keen for that matter, represent a significant moment in computer game history, where a true console-like platform experience was finally able to be enjoyed on computer monitors. 
while each title would have varying degrees of success and legacy, and the companies behind those titles would evolve in a variety of ways. They all had one thing in common. They all began as shareware releases, and in the process, would serve to popularize a form of software distribution that would pervade the entire computer game industry for over a decade. Whether your personal favorite is Jill of the Jungle, or Duke Nukem, or maybe even Billy Blaze, the fact remains that all deserve a spot in gaming history, and I would venture a guess that for many of the gamers that grew up with these titles, they will likely remain a part of our collective memories for countless years to come. are now going to shift to start talking about what it feels like to play Jill of the Jungle and Duke Nukem today versus when they were released over 30 years ago, and we're going to throw them into a cage match to see which one reigns supreme. So because we're talking about two action platform titles released around the same time, and both originating as shareware episodic games, we're going to have a little bit of fun comparing them. We'll start by going through an overview of each game, the core mechanics, the structure, all of that good stuff. Once we finish the overview and begin talking about the more specific aspects of each title, like the graphics, sound, and story, we're going to structure our discussion in the format of a one versus one kind of fight, where for each category, we'll determine which game beats the other, and the game with the most points at the end will be declared the king or queen of this particular shareware showdown. So let's start talking about the games, and I figure it might make the most sense to go in chronological order. So we're going to start by talking about Duke Nukem. In Duke Nukem, you play as, well, you play as Duke Nukem, a super macho action hero type who you'll control to run, jump, and shoot your way through 30 diverse levels across three distinct episodes. Each episode consists of 10 levels, and they all have a pretty similar structure. You have to traverse a number of obstacles, defeat a ton of enemies, retrieve various keys, and ultimately make your way to the exit of each stage. Assuming you make your way through all of the stages in a given episode, you'll eventually come upon a boss fight, of which there is one per episode. Each episode's ending boss fight is progressively more challenging than the last, and acts as a nice culmination of that episode's set of levels. As you play the stages in each episode, you'll be able to collect a number of items that will increase your point total, as well as collect various food items to replenish your health, such as sodas and chicken. You do have a life bar in the game, so it's not like it's a one-hit-kill kind of scenario, but you do have to watch your hit points to ensure you don't find yourself in a difficult situation with little life remaining. The good news is that if you die, you simply go back to the last hallway that preceded the level you're currently on. The way the game works is, you play a level, and assuming you make it to the exit of a given stage, you're presented with an interim hallway of sorts where you receive any bonus rewards that you might have earned during that level, and can also read a brief pseudo-hint on a plaque on the wall of the hallway. Sometimes these hints are really just comments or suggestions, like save your game. 
Other hints, though, will point you in the direction of certain key power-ups or items that you need to find in the next level in order to progress. Speaking of those power-ups and items, one of Duke Nukem's unique features is the fact that you can find a number of different items throughout the various levels that grant Duke different abilities, such as special shoes that allow you to jump higher, a grappling hook that allows you to climb across certain ceilings, and a robot arm that unlocks special areas of the map and extends bridges over gaps that are otherwise uncrossable. You can also find upgrades for your pistol weapon, up to a total of 5 per episode, that increases your rate of fire and, by extension, your damage output. You do have to start over from scratch at the beginning of each episode, meaning power-ups do not carry over from one episode to the next. But honestly, that's pretty much par for the course from this era of shareware-based titles, so no big issue there. Now, you might be thinking, okay, you're playing Duke Nukem, a game with a character who very obviously took a ton of inspiration from the action hero prototype popularized by Hollywood. Surely, the game is going to have a ton of action. And of course, you would be right. Duke Nukem is certainly an action shooter experience. But something I found interesting is that it's not a mindless action shooter experience. Instead, I would almost classify Duke Nukem as a thinking person's action platform shooter. And let me explain why that is. In Duke Nukem, you cannot just run straight through a level blasting anything in sight. I mean, you can try, and you might have a modicum of success, but it's not really the way I believe the developers intended the game to be played. Rather, Duke Nukem is much more focused on and encourages exploration in each level, as oftentimes there are multiple paths through a given stage, all of which lead to the eventual exit. Some of those paths might lead to additional power-ups that, though unnecessary to complete the game, might make your playthrough a bit easier. So, it definitely behooves you to look around, rather than simply make a beeline for wherever you assume the exit to be. While playing the game, I also felt like the general pace of gameplay was a bit slower than I expected, which honestly was a good thing. To put it into cinematic terms, it's almost like it's a bit more diehard, a little less Rambo, and I truly believe the right way to play the game is to take it just a little bit slower take in the sights, and explore every nook and cranny of each level that you can. Power-ups and health-replenishing items are fairly plentiful, and many full health-replenishment items like the nuclear atom are only found if you explore a bit off the beaten path. So get out there, shoot some alien scum, and have fun doing it. Before we talk about Jill of the Jungle, I do want to take a look at what the back of the box says for Duke Nukem, because, as you guys know, I love looking at the back of the box for these games. I love seeing how different companies marketed their titles, especially games released around this time frame, if not a little bit earlier, because we didn't have the internet to look up facts about games. We didn't have YouTube to be able to look up gameplay videos. A lot of times, we, we may not have even had magazine articles to take a look at reviews. A lot of times, we made a buying decision. It was all based on what the back of the box said. Now, granted, we're talking shareware, so many of these titles didn't necessarily have a full-fledged retail release, at least not up front. But still, I want to take a look at what the boxes that are available say and what those backs of the boxes look like because I still find them interesting. So, for Duke Nukem, the back of the box says... Duke Nukem, Shrapnel City, The Last Urban Hero. 
Sly, Bruce, Jean-Claude, and Arnold step aside as soldier of fortune and self-proclaimed hero Duke Nukem. The CIA knows only you have the agility and firepower to take on the world's most despicable madman, Dr. Proton. Run, jump, climb, somersault, and nuke your way through the embattled city that Proton intends to make his own. Huge four-way dual-scrolling playfields with unbelievably smooth graphic animation draw you into the action. Fantastic cinematic sequences, great arcade sound effects, built-in hint mode, and more make this one of the most popular new games ever. And then there is a spot that says the shareware advantage. The outstanding fully functional software in this package is yours to try for just the cost of packaging, copying, and distribution. That's the shareware advantage. You get to test drive some of today's best software without paying outrageous prices. If you continue to use the software, you register directly with the author for an additional cost. When you register, you will often receive the latest version of the program, telephone support, a printed manual, and even additional software by the same author. And that's pretty much the back of the Shareware Episode 1 disc for Duke Nukem. And I've got to say, sounds pretty darn awesome to me. I did not actually own the Duke Nukem Shareware back when it originally released. I think I've told this story before, but I didn't really get into computer gaming until Doom came out. Now that, the Shareware for Doom, I did, in fact, purchase. And that was my very first both computer game purchase as well as shareware purchase. I still have the cardboard the uh, cardboard box and the disc that came with that for the original Doom Episode 1 shareware. I love that thing, and that is the thing that, like I said, got me into PC gaming, really. So I didn't have Duke Nukem back in the day, but I can certainly respect what they did here, and if I were into computer gaming back then... I would have definitely picked this one up. Now, I do want to mention one important factor or facet of this shareware box, so to speak. It's really more of like a cardboard sleeve kind of thing. The back of the box does have Duke Nukem spelled N-U-K-U-M, which was the very first way that Duke Nukem was being referenced. Actually, I believe the first way was Nukem N-U-K-E-M, and then there was a copyright infringement lawsuit or some copyright infringement discussions that were happening between Apogee and another company that eventually then they had to change their name to Duke Nukem N-U-K-U-M, and then ultimately they were able to change it back to N-U-K-E-M. And interestingly, the screenshot on the back of the box actually shows N-U-K-E-M despite the shareware packaging saying N-U-K-U-M. Hopefully everybody was able to follow that. But anyway, that is the back of the box for Duke Nukem. We are now going to talk about the overview and structure for Jill of the Jungle. In Jill of the Jungle, you play as, well, Jill of the Jungle, an Amazonian warrior who is thrust into an unexpected adventure that spans three episodes over 60 different levels, including several bonus levels in each episode. As you make your way through your adventure, you'll jump, throw various weapons at enemies, use elevators, hit switches, find keys, and explore hidden areas in the hopes of eventually finding the exit of each stage. You'll find a number of different items as you progress through the game, including weapons, which you can grab multiples of, which actually lets you throw more than one consecutively, apples to replenish your health, and various points-based items to increase your high score. Unlike many episodic games of the early 90s, the majority of your inventory is discarded whenever you begin a new stage, as opposed to holding on to your power-ups until you complete a given episode. 
In this way, the developers made it so that they could tailor the experience of a given level a bit more closely, since they knew exactly what equipment you'd be bringing into a stage, and they could design their encounters around that knowledge. What makes Jill of the Jungle super interesting to me is the fact that the mechanics in the game stretch well beyond the traditional get power-ups, find keys, and exit level mechanics that were fairly prevalent in games of this era. One such mechanic is a series of power-ups that you can acquire that allow you to shapeshift into various animals to traverse certain levels, some of which are required in order to progress through the game. As an example, you might turn into a bird, which will allow you to fly up through a narrow passage that would otherwise be inaccessible. Or you might turn into a fish, which will allow you to explore the underwater depths of a given stage. Oh, and by the way, water is otherwise lethal in this game. Or you might turn into a hopping frog with an extended jump kind of ability, allowing you to reach platforms that might have otherwise been unreachable. All of these shape-shifting mechanics, while specific to the level that you're traversing as opposed to a learnable skill, add some nice variety to the game. And it was always interesting seeing how these animal shape-shifting mechanics could allow for unique traversal of various levels. One other key aspect of the game that set it apart from the rest of the platforming pack was the reliance on puzzles in a good chunk of the game's levels. Rather than just have a bunch of stages that require killing all enemies in sight, some stages require you to solve a series of puzzles or jump challenges or similar kinds of scenarios in order to progress. I found these sections to be a wonderful change of pace, and I legitimately wondered why other platforming titles didn't have similar puzzle platform style levels in their games. It certainly helped to set Jill of the Jungle apart as a unique experience, and I greatly enjoyed the levels that were more puzzle-centric as opposed to action-heavy experiences. One other item to note is that there were no bosses in Jill of the Jungle. If you make your way to the exit of the final stage of a given episode, that's pretty much it. You've beaten the episode. Now, there was a little interlude stage and animation that would play whenever you finished the last stage of an episode, but otherwise, it's not like the game culminates in any sort of big bad boss fight. Which is to say, Jill of the Jungle is focused more so on platforming than it is on fast-paced action. Sure, you get a bunch of weapons that you can use to throw at enemies, and as you acquire multiple copies of a given weapon during a level, you gain the ability to cause even more destruction. But the action gameplay isn't really the focus here, and from my perspective, Jill of the Jungle is more about the experience of navigating these levels, finding hidden keys, and solving puzzles along the way. And in my opinion, it's a formula that definitely works. So let's take a look at the back of the box for Jill of the Jungle. So for Jill of the Jungle, the back of the box says... Wild Beasts, Exotic Settings, and Red Hot Adventure. Now you can own all three huge episodes of the mega-hit Jill of the Jungle. Sharp color graphics and smooth animation highlight Jill's movements as she runs, jumps, and climbs to avoid dangerous animals and jungle traps, including giant birds and spike-filled pits. You are in control as Jill mystically transforms into a bird, frog, and fish. The action is non-stop, and Jill's quest for the prince provides hours of constantly changing, constantly challenging arcade-style action. No wonder this game has won high praise from customer and critics alike. Then they have a couple of quotes here. One says, Crisp, attractive, 256 color graphics, and a catchy Sound Blaster soundtrack with digitized sound effects. That was Computer Gaming World. And then Video Games and Computer Entertainment says, Exciting Action Trilogy. 
very similar to what you find on many video game console carts. And then, of course, there are some screenshots on the back of the box. And just for awareness, this was the full trilogy retail release box. This was not the shareware release. So this was actually after all three episodes were developed, a trilogy version was released to retail shelves. That's what this back of the box has. And beyond the screenshots, there is an illustrated version of Jill swinging on a vine. So I got to say, this box kind of does it for me, too. I think this one sounded very interesting. I did not have Jill of the Jungle when I was younger either. So my first experience with Jill of the Jungle, at least in earnest, was playing it for this podcast. Same kind of thing with Duke Nukem. I had played both games previously, but I never really sat down to truly play them until I prepared for this episode. So we are now going to move into our cage match between Jill of the Jungle and Duke Nukem as we talk about the specific aspects of each game. So let's start by talking about the graphics. When I sat down to play Duke Nukem, knowing that was only using 16 color graphics, I kind of expected a fairly limited visual experience. But boy, was I wrong. The graphics in the title, despite having only 16 colors, were so well-designed and so evocative that the environments and enemies really popped off the screen, much more so than I ever expected. This is one of those cases where a quality design can make up for a technical limitation, as Duke Nukem looked really good. The sprite work was large and varied, and you could very clearly see individual details for pretty much every object in the game world. Sure, you're not going to see a ton of high-definition visuals, but in this case, it doesn't matter, as Duke Nukem's style still oozes through. I cannot stress enough how impressed I was with what Apogee was able to do with only 16 colors. Seriously impressive work. Jill of the Jungle, by contrast, had a full VGA color palette at its disposal, meaning 256 colors, which you would think would translate into truly impressive visuals for the time. And yes, from a technical perspective, colors looked clean and environments and enemies all looked good and nicely colored. But from my perspective, there is one major flaw in the game's visual design, and that is the fact that the game almost feels zoomed out to a degree, making enemies and characters appear smaller and, by extension, less engaging than they could have been. Meaning, despite the game utilizing 256 colors for its graphics, the size of the game's sprites make it almost feel like it has less detail than you would expect. If I take a look at Duke Nukem, which features a more zoomed-in approach, the additional details are evident, even only using 16 colors. This is one area where having higher technical capabilities doesn't necessarily translate into a better-looking experience. Jill of the Jungle looks fine, and the design is very clean. It's just not as evocative as Duke Nukem's graphic design. I guess a better way to put it is, Jill of the Jungle looks like a sharer game, with very clearly defined tiles used to build the game in its world. Duke Nukem looks like the first episode of a retail game distributed via shareware. It's a subtle difference, but one that is fairly visible when putting the game side by side. I should also mention the animation for both titles. In short, Duke Nukem's animations are pretty darn smooth and play exactly how you would expect a platforming title to play. Jill of the Jungle's animations are okay, but similar to my general comment about the graphics, they feel a bit less detailed, a bit less handcrafted, 
By extension, that makes certain movements feel less natural to a degree than what you see in Duke Nukem. It's not bad, it's just not as good as it could have been. So round one goes to Duke Nukem. Moving on to the sound and music. Discussing the sound and music for both titles is actually a little bit difficult, because for different reasons, I believe each excels. Let's look at Duke Nukem first, because it's probably the easiest to talk about. In short, Duke Nukem has no music at all, save for some very brief musical interlude jingles, and all sound effects are effectively PC speaker audio that combines bleeps, boops, and various sound waves to cover every sound you hear in the game, from your laser gunshots to electrical force fields to enemy actions. Obviously, this is not going to be an auditory experience to get your high-fidelity headphones out for. That said, the audio in Duke Nukem all works really well within the context of the game, and it's kind of strange in that the sounds that are there make the game's audio environment feel more expansive than what is really there. I'm not sure exactly how Apogee did it, but I almost forgot I was playing a game with no background music or higher quality sound effects. It sounded really good, despite the limited technical capabilities at play. Jill of the Jungle, similar to our graphics discussion, went a bit further, with a fully composed soundtrack for each level of the game, which all sounded great. The soundtrack here is legitimately good, and even though I never played Jill of the Jungle in earnest before this podcast episode, the music automatically filled me with a sense of nostalgia, simply because of the style of music that the game used, which can best be described as early 90s MIDI. You know the type of music I'm talking about, where instruments don't really sound like real instruments, but were close enough that talented composers could make music that could still evoke great feeling and emotion. I'm not saying Jill of the Jungle's music was an emotional tour de force, but it was all pretty darn nice to listen to. Jill's sound effects, meanwhile, were almost laughably amateur-sounding, with each sound effect a digital recording that feels like they were stolen off a sound effect compilation CD from 1992. Seriously, the sound effects in the game are so, so amateur, from the ridiculous noise that accompanies throwing your knives in Episode 2, which I initially thought must have been broken it was so bad, to the musical, yeah, chorus that plays every time you pick up a key, to any other number of random sounds throughout the game's levels. Almost every sound outside of the music felt out of place, and similar to the graphics, made the game feel like an amateur shareware title from the early 90s. Now, technically, Jill of the Jungle is a shareware title from the early 90s, but it's definitely missing a bit of that professional polish I would have hoped to see. Deciding the winner of this one is tricky, because each game does different things right. I would say that Duke Nukem is the better-sounding game overall, but I cannot overlook the fact that Jill of the Jungle did in fact have a full soundtrack, which did enhance the overall experience of playing the game. Because of that fact, I think I have to give this round to Jill of the Jungle, though honestly, it was a pretty close race. So round two goes to Jill of the Jungle. Moving on to the narrative and story, both Duke Nukem and Jill of the Jungle feature fairly simple narratives, though pretty much in line with what you would expect from a platforming title. Duke Nukem involves you attempting to save the world from an irradiated madman named Dr. Proton who is intent on enslaving the world using a fleet of advanced robotic creatures. 
Across three episodes of gameplay, you traverse multiple environments, encountering Dr. Proton in a modern, though devastated Earth city, a moon base populated by enemies, and finally, the future, where you attempt to defeat the evil doctor once and for all. Jill of the Jungle presents a story where you play as a strong Amazonian warrior and have to traverse multiple jungle environments, including hidden ruins and hell-like landscapes, in order to eventually find a kidnapped prince and hopefully return him to safety before you yourself return to a quiet life in the jungle. While there are no bosses in the game, you do need to defeat various enemies, solve multiple puzzles, and otherwise avoid deadly obstacles en route to saving your prince from certain doom. Let's not beat around the bush here. Both games offer equally simple narratives providing a reason for why you're playing the game, and both plots worked for me. They had just the right amount of backstory to keep you interested in having an overarching goal while not overcomplicating things or getting in the way of each game's core focus, which is obviously the gameplay. I liked both stories for different reasons, and because they are roughly equivalent, albeit with different story beats, I've got to declare this round a tie. Moving on to the playability and controls. Each game controls nearly identically, with dedicated keys for both jump and attack, and a fairly simple movement scheme where the arrow directions on your keyboard correspond to the directions you move in navigating each environment. Honestly, there's not much to talk about here. The controls are about as simple as a platforming title can be, and I have no complaints. Moving into playability, though, I do have some comments about each. Duke Nukem is designed such that you need to complete each level in full before you're allowed to progress. While you do have unlimited continues, any progress you make in a given level is lost each time you die. Now, you might think that that would lead to frustration, but honestly, the game is so well balanced that you never feel a significant amount of tedium set in due to having to replay a given level. Most levels are pretty short in duration, and overall, the difficulty isn't too crazy either, which lends itself to make the whole experience feel a bit breezier than what many platform titles around the time felt. Jill of the Jungle similarly has unlimited continues, but there are certain maps where your progress is maintained after dying in a level. You do have to go back to the beginning of any level you may be on, but for many of them, you maintain the weapons you may have picked up and enemies you've defeated remain defeated. This makes the game feel like a very light experience, something you can simply pick up and play without much frustration, and I don't imagine many people will find the experience all that difficult, which ultimately is a bit different than how many games around this time were designed. Joel of the Jungle felt designed in such a way that it wanted you to beat the game. It wasn't a pushover, but I truly believe Epic Mega Games wanted almost anyone to be able to make their way through the game. Unlike Duke, whose episodes were all pretty much 100% consistently 10 levels with an end boss, Jill of the Jungle's episodes are all designed just a bit differently from each other, with the first episode having maps connected via another map with portals to various levels, the second episode being one continuous experience where each level leads into the next, and the third episode implementing an overworld map similar to later Commander Keen games. I don't believe either approach is better or worse, but the one thing I will say is that because Jill of the Jungle alters its approach throughout each episode, it does contribute to my belief that the Epic Mega Games team was trying to figure out what would work best, rather than having a unified design and approach up front like Duke Nukem seemed to have. Once again, not something I perceive as negative, it's simply an observation. Something that is a bit more critique-worthy is the way Jill of the Jungle's maps are designed, and how the gameplay feels when playing the game. In short, while the game is relatively smooth, 
movement does tend to feel a bit choppy, and throwing your weapons can take some serious getting used to. Especially your knives, which behave more like drunk boomerangs making their way home from a party than lethal edges of destruction. In their drunken stupor, they often get stuck on level geometry, which honestly does not feel all that great. Assuming you get past the erratic behavior of your weaponry, you'll notice that the individual levels themselves are, for the most part, pretty simple, except when they're not, and the distinction between the two types of levels is pretty vast. When the game decides to throw a huge sprawling level at you, it often accompanies it with needing to recover a bunch of keys in order to progress. The issue is, because many of the levels are structured to be a bit more open-ended, finding those keys can become a bit frustrating. It never reached the point of detracting from the game all that much, but it is something I felt warranted a mention. Duke Nukem's levels, by contrast, are designed in such a way as to funnel you forward towards your eventual goal, despite having multiple paths with which to get there. There are plenty of levels that I know I didn't explore fully, but I still had no issue progressing further into the game, because the levels are almost universally designed incredibly well. And as you move through those well-designed levels, you'll notice that Duke's weapon feels great to use, avoiding all of the issues that Jill's more diverse weapon set introduces into that game. Beyond that, Duke just feels good to play, and is much closer to what a modern shooter platformer would play like, as opposed to Jill of the Jungle, which feels very much like a function of its time. So round four goes to Duke Nukem. Moving on to the overall feel, both games feel good to play, and I truly enjoyed the time I spent with each title. That said, for me, Duke Nukem just feels better put together more polished, more focused, and more professional. Like I mentioned before, Duke felt like a retail product supported by a shareware release, while Jill feels like a shareware title that happened to get additional episodes released for it. Both are fun, and both are worthwhile to experience. It's just that one is, from my perspective, better than the other. So round five goes to Duke Nukem. So it is pretty obvious that Duke Nukem won this showdown, and it was not particularly close. I felt like Duke Nukem represented the near pinnacle of early 90s PC action platforming, and I honestly loved playing the game. All of the things you might think would hold it back, like only using 16 colors and not having any soundtrack or background music, were entirely forgotten about by the time I got a couple levels into the game. Duke Nukem is one well-designed game, and I think Everyone should give it a go to see how one of the most iconic characters in gaming got their start. Therefore, Duke Nukem is the newest addition to our pantheon of classic gaming. It's an incredibly fun, well-designed, and balanced experience, and I believe anyone who gives it a shot will leave with a smile on their face. Jill of the Jungle was also a very fun experience, and I also encourage you all to play this one but I can't ignore the fact that it somehow feels more dated than Duke Nukem, despite being released later than that game and having a greater degree of technical capabilities available for it. It goes to show that stellar game design can trump advanced technology, and I truly believe that it is the major difference between the two games. Duke Nukem is a game designed by a more veteran team with the better design principles, while Jill of the Jungle represents the sophomore effort of a relatively new game studio who certainly had talent, but had not yet figured out how to create a game with a design that would stand the test of time. 
You should still play it, but I'd ready yourself for an experience that very much feels like it was created in the early 90s. For those reasons, I believe Jill of the Jungle is a solid entry on our list of golden oldies. It does a lot right, but also lacks some of those elements that make a game a certifiable classic. Before we move on, I know some longtime listeners might be wondering how Commander Keen would fare in this fight, since that series, which first released in 1990, was a predecessor and inspiration to both Duke and Jill, given the fact that it represents one of the earliest examples of smooth side-scrolling graphics in a computer game. So, if the three were to wrestle it out, triple threat style, well, Commander Keen would likely be punched in the gut early on and spend the majority of the time outside the ring, while Duke and Jill, being the more able-bodied combatants, fought it out. I don't mean to diss on Commander Keen. It's just that it was a really early example of a side-scrolling game on a computer, and as such, there were some design decisions that have not aged nearly as well as other titles. Especially for Commander Keen's earlier trilogy release, it's just a bit more dated and a bit less well-designed than future titles would be, including later titles in the Commander Keen series itself. Because of that unevenness, Keen would have to take a third-place finish, though I still consider the game a solid golden oldie worthy of a playthrough. If I had to take one of these titles to a desert island, though, Commander Keen would not be the one securing safe passage. Returning to Duke Nukem and Jill of the Jungle, though, you pretty much can't go wrong with either. They're both awesome experiences for different reasons, and I truly believe you should give them both a go if you're in the mood for an old-school computer platformer. While I do believe Duke Nukem is the better overall game, you should definitely reserve a spot on your shelf for both titles. was our shareware showdown pitting Jill of the Jungle versus Duke Nukem. I hope you all enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed creating it. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing, provide feedback, comments, suggestions, or just talk about classic games and technology in general. I would love to hear from you, and there are a few ways you can reach out. I have an X account with the handle at ClassicGamingT. I have an email address, which is ClassicGamingToday at gmail.com. And I have a Discord server. The link is in the show notes. Discord is the best way to get in touch with me and the rest of the community around this podcast. Beyond Discord, we also have a Patreon. That is patreon.com slash classicgamingtoday. So if anybody would like even more Classic Gaming Today goodness, patreon.com slash classicgamingtoday is where it's at. Before we sign off for the week, I do want to mention that our next episode is going to be focused on the point-and-click adventure game Full Throttle, and this is a special one because it is our very first Pantheon patron-sponsored episode. ISO is sponsoring this episode. That means he could pretty much do whatever the heck he wants with it, and I am contractually obligated to follow his lead sort of. But anyway, it should be a fun time. We'll be talking about Full Throttle in a week, so feel free to write in if you have any particularly fond or not so fond memories of that experience. At the same time, it would be great if you wouldn't mind to leave me a review. 
I'm not trying to bolster star counts. This is not about trying to harvest a bunch of five-star ratings. Though if that happens, awesome. That means we're doing something right. No, what this is really all about is making sure that I am delivering the best possible podcast I am. And the only way to do that is to get feedback from the listener community to make sure that there are no gaps and to make sure that I am delivering the content that you all want to listen to. We get new listeners every single day, which is absolutely awesome. I want to make sure that I can continue to make this the best possible podcast that I can. We'll be back in around a week with our next episode focused on full throttle. Until then, remember, sometimes the games of the past are just as good, if not better, than the games of today. Goodbye, everyone. <laughs>